0: This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. We're never teasing
1: and always pleasing. We are the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro. I have a Woody you could play sports with. My co-host is the man in the white vest that's making you scared. But you know you like it. It's Chris Sinzak. What do you say, brother?
2: I was going to do the Sport No Woody reference. You stole it from me.
1: <laughs> How's it going, man?
2: Good. So it's, uh, it's been a while since we've done one of these, and uh, I think everybody's going to really enjoy this one.
1: Yeah, man. It's been a minute since we've done Albums Unleashed. Everybody wants it. They always say when they're listening to their favorite episodes, it seems like Albums Unleashed is usually number one. And, you know, we haven't done one in a minute. So, we thought the time is perfect to bring it back right here for you today. We've got a very special guest, and we're going to talk about a very awesome album. Stick around for that because we got a little business to handle before we get to it. And I'm talking about reviews and recommendations. You know what's on the line. It's Christmas in July. We've got to get to 20 before then. I know, we're holding it hostage. <laughs> But I believe we can do it, especially when I see what I see in front of me right now, and that is some sweet reviews and recommendations. We're knocking them out. We're going to get there. I got a feeling we're going to get us some Kissmas in July. So let's kick it off like this. It is a Facebook recommendation. It comes to us from A to Z Radio. I think everybody that listens to Decibel Geek probably definitely knows all about A to Z radio. The recommendation, it goes a little something like this. Decibel Geek is a unique podcast, as they are proud of the music that they grew up listening to, as well as looking forward to the future of hard rock and metal music. Chris and Aaron are a great team that have encouraged numerous podcasters as to what makes a great show. That's awesome.
2: Very nice. I'm wondering if that's probably Bill Elam that posted that.
1: I think we're going to be seeing Bill here shortly in Indianapolis, right?
2: Oh, is he going to be there too?
1: Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else.
2: I know that's up in his area, though.
1: Yeah, maybe. I'll have to reach out to him. I know a bunch of people that are going. I'd love to hang out with him. The more the merrier. If you guys want to meet us in Indianapolis for Ugly Kid Joe, we're going to be there. That one takes us down to 10. Let's keep going. We're doing good. This one is another Facebook recommendation. It goes, great podcast. Loving radio sucks at work. Keep it up, guys, and keep rocking. That one comes to us from Chris LeVette, and it is a Facebook recommendation. We're down nine. Let's see. Can we keep going? Can we? Can we? We can. We've got a Podchaser review. I know it's Podchaser. Because it's got all five pink stars, just the way we love it. And here it is. Oh, nice. I know who this is from. It comes to us from the rated X rock star. We know him better as our friend Aaron Baker. He says this. Not much can be said that hasn't already been said about Chris and Aaron as hosts. Except this. I consider these guys like family. Except Chris has a Juice Newton collection, still questions me to this day. Q. Aaron Camaro laugh here. <laughs> right on time. <laughs> oh man, I have been a loyal listener for just about the same length as this podcast has been around and have even been a guest host as well as I always find myself dying of laughter at Chris's quick wit and wait with, a, and wait with much anticipation as a new Guns N' Roses album for Aaron's laugh as a response. Lastly, Decibel Geek is like a fine wine. It gets better with age, unlike some of the bands that we know and love from back in the day. <laughs> Keep up the great work, and I'll see you guys at the next Rockin' Pod. Fan-freakin'-tastic. Great review. Awesome review. Can't ask for much better than that. Thank you, Mr. Baker. You're awesome. There you have it. That brings us down to 10, 9, 8 left to go. I got a feeling we can probably easily get eight reviews between now and July, but the year's gone by pretty quick already. Don't let it sneak up on us. If July 1st hits and we've got 19, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so don't hesitate any longer. Get out there on Podchaser like Aaron Baker did, or hit us up on the Facebook, like the page, give us a follow. Join the Decibel Geek community, all that good stuff, and give us a recommendation on there. And we especially love the Apple Podcast reviews. Five stars will make it count. We're going to get there. July is right around the corner. We're going to have some fun with it this year, if you let us do it. It's up to you. So we love everybody that listens to this show, all the people that have said, bring back Albums Unleashed for crying out loud, and we're going to do it. We love the people that support Decibel Geek, and few people support Decibel Geek better than the people that every single week are taking the time to share and retweet when we come out with a new episode. Last time, we brought back the Radio Sucks radio show, and man, people loved it. We played some kick-ass rock and roll that you might not have heard of before. Somebody's got to play it. Might as well be us, and we love it that you love when we do it. And we know you love it because you share it, you retweet it, and that's what makes you a geek of the week.
2: Geeks of the week this week are Adam Cox, Rockin' Run Runyon, Kristen Schimbeck, Mark Starsky, John Phillips, Mike Stewart, Shane Aber, Darren Lanou, Ralph Vieira, Samuel Wetz, Eric Luzier, Nate Atchison, David Glenn, Shay Hargett, Aaron Baker, Steve Selepsky, Craig Turdick. Simon Cat, Mike Parnell, Keith Rockford, Brian Knapp, Sean Geek Podcast, and Obscuria Podcast, Jeffrey Mendenhall, Mark Alden-Taylor, Freeform Rock Podcast, Mark and Jerry BS Sessions, David Cathy, Will Honeycutt, Joseph Capone, Victor Ruiz, Ernesto Aguiar, Pantheon Podcast, Kevin's on Fire, Jeff Mendenhall, Whiting Guitar Works, Vet Halen, Scott Crouch, and
1: as always, The Mooger Fooger. That's right. Those are our people, the best in the world. You want to be a member? It's very easy. It's an elite group you can be a part of. All you got to do is find on Facebook when we share this episode, Albums Unleashed, Dangerous Toys. You take that, you share it, you retweet it, you get added to the list, you become a Geek of the Week. You'll hear your name next week right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast. You got to love that. Thank you, everybody. That gives us the love. So, any final words before we get to this awesome thing?
2: Nah, I know everybody's going to have fun with this. It's a super-sized episode. We talked for a long time, and Jason had tons of great
1: stories. Yeah, it's awesome, man. I can't wait for you guys to enjoy it. So here it is. Decibel Geek is back with an all-time favorite, Albums Unleashed, the debut album from Dangerous Toys with the one and only Jason McMaster. I don't know where you guys were in 1989, I guess I kind of do, but I know where I was. I was listening to hard rock and metal music. It was such a huge part of my life, and finding out about new bands all the time, and watching Headbangers Ball and getting turned on to stuff, and it was it was what I lived for, and I'll never forget the first time that I saw Dangerous Toys on the Headbangers Ball, and I was like, oh yeah. That's that's right up my alley, and I couldn't wait for the debut, so I'm excited today because it's the return of Albums Unleashed on the Decibel Geek Podcast, and today we're talking about that debut album from the Dangerous Toys, and I can't think of anybody better to tell us the story about it than Jason McMaster himself. Jason, thanks for coming on with us. Brother, how you doing?
3: I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um on your show to talk about myself (laughs) yeah it was um
2: for me i didn't see it i didn't see the first time on them the first time on headbangers ball for me it was a show called hard 60 Mm -hmm. that mtv would do during the middle of the day and that's also where i discovered tora tora and roxy blue and several other bands and uh it was the tease and pleasing video and i remember that and then scared came out and they got bigger but i also remembered and it was funny i thought i I couldn't remember if I was misremembering this. I remember you and another member of the band hosting Hard 60, and then I was doing my YouTube research yesterday, and sure enough, I found the clip, and I remember watching
3: that when it happened live. Yeah, it was me and Mark, the drummer. Jason McMaster, we're from Dangerous Toys. We're your guest hosts for today's Hard 60. We got videos on the way from, hey, Joe, how's it going, eh? Bang Tango, Guns Guns N' Roses, roses.
0: Skid Skid row. Row, Aerosmith Aerosmith and
3: extreme yeah it was kind of a quick day they had us in there just do some like promos that's what it felt like like some drops you know and then they just edited edited into the show i guess we announced a couple of videos and that was that there was a shout out i, I think i remember we played uh someone like you bang tango and i do a shout out to joe because uh we're we're chummy and uh so yeah yeah i would get
2: home from school and it would come on like 30 minutes after i got home from school and i would i would get turned on to bands all that they would play a lot of newer bands on that show it was not so much the established ones it was like i said tora tora you guys roxy blue several other bands and then but i mean uh, before we get into the album why didn't you tell me it was your birthday on the day that we did the rock
3: and pod expo i would have done something for you that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> you just answered your own question. I mean, I mean, okay, okay, let's let's play along. Let's go back to that day. Hey, and uh by the way, it's my wedding anniversary and it's my birthday. Oh, wow, nice. Oh, wow. Is that how you would have reacted? Oh, wow. <laughs> So so it's we're that day we're in Nashville we're we're doing I'm telling you I just told you and then what were you gonna do so it's just I know next time,
1: yeah balloons confetti uh no pyro but you know
3: lots of confetti
2: more mess to clean up yeah yeah there was already enough of one I, no, no problem adding some more <laughs> <We're> to <today. there.
3: laughs> it I I see your I see your point so I it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Wedding day and birthday,
2: or wedding anniversary and birthday. It's a good way to remember yeah, both. Yeah, so
3: that's how awesome my wife is. Yeah, to let me go work on my birthday and my wedding anniversary. Yeah,
1: that's very cool.
3: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, by the way, speaking of Rock and Pod, I know I've thanked you already, but thank you, thank to thanks to Tyson for uh, suggesting it to you. Me and Dave had such a blast and and met a lot of folks face to face and learned a lot um so we just are very appreciative of that even first something like that exists too that we have enough episodes under our belt to actually matter enough for someone to go hey you should get these clowns you know so (laughs) uh really worked out what a happy time
2: thanks man it was it was great having you and you got a, a lot of great feedback on how cool you were to everybody. All the podcasters love getting to meet you and stuff. So it was it was fun. It's
3: pretty easy to be nice to people that you right. respect.
1: And appreciate and yeah. respect you back. Mm. Ditto.
2: All right. Well, Aaron, how do we want to get into this? We've got, the, we've got a lot to cover well, I mean, with this
1: album. Before there even is such a thing as Dangerous Toys, you're in another band called Watchtower. And then... I mean, you have to transition from that band into what will later on become Dangerous Toys. But you were in that band, Watchtower, for a minute. Was that a tough decision, to leave one band to jump to another? And how? what's the process on all that?
3: Well, I was in Watchtower when, when we were, me and the Watchtower guys, which has absolutely zero affiliation with Dangerous Toys camp or people or anything. Uh, It's like from another part of town kind of thing. Literally the musically headspace, everything, totally another planet. How about that? Uh, But a couple of the, the, well, I'll, where do I start? High school. We were in high school, me and the Watchtower guys. I was probably 17 or 18 in Watchtower. I joined in May of 1982. Uh, and then so there, you know, it's basically a de- the decade prior to the time in in Dangerous Toys, I started moonlighting as the singer for a number of other bands around town that just started doing covers and such, and uh, that kind of made it made me approachable by other other bands in town who might you know be doing like a club circuit like cover band club circuit thing, which is what this band called Onyx was doing. And Onyx is uh, a female singer uh, from Louisiana who's was pretty good singer. Uh, she was the singer for what turned into Dangerous Toys. Uh, and I'd seen Onyx play a couple times. And so, you know, Onyx, because she had black hair and wore all black and then the guys behind her, which ended up being dangerous toys, uh, were all blonde like poison and wore like brightly colored uh, rodeo clown outfits. Wait, that's not (laughs) right. Not right. Might as well have been rodeo clown outfits. You know, those cowboys wear those button up shirts that looks like Christmas wrapping paper. Mm. That's where I was going with that. (laughs) It's like a clown vomited on it anyway. So the clown thing goes back a long time. Well, I'm just, I'm just, (laughs) I see what you did there, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not really relating. The guys in Onyx, uh, were, they were, they look like poison a little bit, brightly colored dress. There you go. Uh, so when they had a falling out with Onyx, uh, a couple of the guys in, in Onyx, had come to see Watchtower play. And Watchtower, I already alluded that it was quite different, Uh, was this, like, all of the instruments falling down the stairs at the same time, at the speed of light, um, in time. Wow. (laughs) With me singing over it. They were like a thrash metal band? Correct. Pioneers of progressive thrash metal, arguably for anyone who wants to flex and start a fight with those words. Uh, But you can ask Mike Portnoy. You could ask Chuck Schuldner of death, but he has sadly passed away. Um, But those were our championing fans, the guys in Atheist, the guys in Cynic, any progressive... Band that sort of was happening in other scenes at the same time. Uh, they will they will tell you. I don't need to tell you. Uh, but somewhat of a pioneer. There's a book called Mean Deviation that you guys. I think it might be out of print, but if you can find a copy of that, you'll learn a lot. Mean Deviation: Four Decades of Progressive Metal, and of course Voivod. And bands like that are in there. You know, they, you know, Metallica, Queensryche, and Merciful Fate, and Megadeth are all mentioned in there. Pretty much anybody who had like nine minute songs with 10 different riffs in one song (laughs) are in that book. So I come from that. And we, I made a record with them in '85. Underground, worldly underground, uh, critical acclaim. A lot of, Rock fanzines, magazines. This is before we were in glossy magazines. It was fanzines, it was tape trading and underground stuff. Um, some of them didn't, even if it was a thrash magazine, they didn't know how to review our record because it was quite different. They didn't know where to put us, right? What section does this go in? What kind of metal is this kind of a thing? So, fast forward back to where I was. Uh, Couple guys in um, Onyx had come to visit me at my my job, which was I worked at a place called Pantera's Pizza.
2: Wow, foreshadowing!
3: And they were a uh, a local chain. There was a South and a North location, um, here in Austin, Texas. And uh, they show up, and I thought I had recognized them, and I was like, "Hey, can I help you guys?" And they were like, "Oh, we're here to talk to you about." You know, singing for our band, and here da da da, da here's our number, and I'd go, oh yeah, I've seen you guys. You guys are fun, blah, blah, blah. So I ended up, you know, working with them because uh, what they rolled out was we lost our singer. We have shows that we need that are booked that we want to do that we can still do. Of course, we'll have to change the name because you know the singer, that's what she went by, was Onyx. And I said, I get it, I get it. And, but this is how we fucking eat. You know, this is how we pay bills is do a club circuit thing. And I was like, oh shit. And I was like, okay, well let me call you guys and we'll just get together and jam and play some songs and whatever. So that happened. And then I got comfortable and they played me some songs that she had written the lyrics for without her singing on them. And I was like, Oh, let me take those home. And, uh, I think here comes trouble is the first lyric I wrote over one, of one of their songs. And I think that song originally was called no more or no more, no more, or something like that. I was, they, I was going, did you guys thank Aerosmith? <laughs> <laughs> Cause they have a song called yeah. no more, you know, anyway, great song. Uh, I love, yeah. I love that yeah. old Aerosmith first four albums. Oh, yeah. shit. Anyway, so, so, stuff like that started to happen. Then we got a call to do a gig, and the guy was like, well, "What are you gonna call yourselves and we're We're at the mark the drummer's house and it's like they're on you know he's on the phone. What are we gonna call this shit?" And me and Scott are over there going, "I don't know. saw this bumper sticker today. Bad boys play with dangerous toys, or the one with the most toys wins or and I was like, and I was like, I "Think you might be onto something that's good enough." And we agreed, just dangerous toys, just do that. We can change it later if we hate it. Well Wow
2: <laughs> This is a filler filler name. Never
3: got around to changing it. And we kinda didn't some of us were like, Man, it's kinda terrible <laughs> So it just stuck. So we played our first show at the back room here in Austin, which has been gone for a while now. Uh, it was like the watering hole, you know, uh, Onyx had been like the house band there, you know, like packed it out all the time, big party in there all the time. Every scene has that band, you know, your favorite cover band. That's all your friends play in and everyone goes to see on Friday night. Cause you know, they're, they play there every other weekend, whatever. Right. So, but it was dangerous toys and we started, you know, and it was the kind of thing where Onyx had all her fans, Standing in the back, you know, cross-armed. Yeah. Who's this fucking guy, you know? And then people, it was on everyone's lips. Oh, shit, that's Jason from Watchtower. And people knew Watchtower already. They were like, this is going to be really good or really terrible. So I guess uh, it stuck. Uh, for the most part, the Watchtower fans were, I was on their shit list. Because they were, they you know, they they Watchtower was a big deal to them, and it was, you know, they liked the heavier ilk. They didn't really like seeing their Jason McMaster sing Faster Pussycat and Poison or whatever, right? Right. But, I mean, it was, you know, it it was, uh, that version of the band was, well, here you go, I can just speak this, I can put this all on top. We weren't looking to get a record deal. We weren't trying to be anything other than a bunch of bozos playing cover songs, having a beer, and and making everyone smile after they got off of work that week. That's it. That's it. That's totally it. Started writing tunes with those guys. By the way, I'm still in Watchtower. Right. But we only played like once a month or every couple of months or whatever because of we used to put on our own shows. We never really found a, a bar, right? We would rent out a venue and charge tickets and keep the money. See what I'm saying? We ha- we had our own scene happening.
2: Were, um, were those guys like, what are you doing with this other band, or were they cool with it?
3: Well, I mean, they were welcome to be in as many fucking bands as they wanted. It wasn't a contest. You know, right. I I didn't feel threatened by it maybe the guitar player uh ron you know may have said something to me like well just you know don't get too busy with that sorry ron because you know lemmy once said and this may be he may have stolen it from nietzsche or something but lemmy said be careful your biggest mistake will be what you're known for
1: that's wise there's some wisdom in that
3: well, if that if if Dangerous Toys was a mistake, it, it was pretty fun mistake. Uh, I I did feel a lot of guilt for upsetting, being a disruptor to the Watchtower camp. Uh, but I was I did my damnedest to help them find replacement singers. And I did, and and the guy that they ended up with, uh, I I I'm the one that reached out to him. It's like, hey man, I got this thing and i gotta split you know was, can you you know you should look into this or what are you busy you know and kind of a thing and, and that's alan tecchio who was in the band a jersey metal band called hades yeah and they had a few re- couple records out and they had just toured europe and he had just gotten he declined the first time and then he called me later and was like you got doug's number you know i was like wow that was a quick turn he's like yeah some things went south and I was like well good for Watchtower and so he ended up rehearsing with them like one time maybe and then they all got on a plane and went to Germany to record the first you know the the second it would would have been Watchtower record so I was continuing to to help them and championing them the entire time Dangerous Toys photo shoots, wearing Watchtower shirts and interviews and shit, talking about Watchtower and always bringing them up at the top of, you know, the game. Um, and obviously, I still am. Uh, ironically, I rehearsed with Watchtower recently, and we're doing oh, yeah. some festivals next year. Oh, cool. Holy nice. shit. Yeah? Yes, just in. That's crazy news. So uh you know we're, well you know maybe i let the cat out of the bag but those are not confirmed but we are we have been asked to play some festivals cool well here
2: you just gave us our blabbermouth yeah, headline thanks pretty damn cool
3: well yeah uh it's 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 <laughs> it's possible that we are to uh do some shows uh soon but we have rehearsed a couple of times and you know just on a sidebar it's weird playing songs for, you know sp- very sporadically because I've done re- reunion things with Watchtower before but the last one was 20 years ago. The last wow. sort of reunion thing we did we we went to Amstelveen which is just Amsterdam and played a festival over there and we did a couple of warm up shows around Texas when we be- before we got on the plane kind of thing. And uh well, that was that was in o four so
1: that's been a
2: while what I was
3: gonna say is like singing songs that you wrote when you 40 years ago yeah wow. <laughs> it's fucking crazy that's crazy to think about that you know
1: I suppose there songs songs you wrote when you were a teenager
3: yeah and have them be legit you know, play them and you're like, holy shit and have the you know, all of the guys look around each other in rehearsal as old men and go, This shit is fucking hard to play. That's why people like it. You know, Rush <laughs> wrote, I'm not comparing us to Rush, but because everyone else does, right? Um mm-hmm. uh, they wrote songs that they had to fucking relentlessly rehearse. If they wrote songs they could barely play until so they could, you know, after show five, it was on, you know, they, they were, it was like, they didn't even have to think about it. So, but to, to just, to just dabble in it over four decades, Oh, you know, it's a couple shows, you know, Oh, dangerous toys, but Hey, let's do a reunion show. Ah, uh, It's like, fuck. It's kind of weird. It's pretty cool. So, though. Getting it as tight as you want it to be is hard. So <clears throat> back to like how the, the beginnings of the, of the toys, those guys came in and, you know, I, I, I was open to having fun and that's what it was. It was fun. We weren't looking for a record deal or anything. And so the guy that booked the back room and we played like three bars, we played two bars in Austin, one of them being the back room, which by the way, side note, next year, there is a, documentary coming coming out called bloody and bruised the untold story of the back room wow so that uh and we were you know i was interviewed for it all there's all kinds of bands from around austin that played there um they did a bunch of reenactments like they had these kids like dress up like dangerous toys and they're backlit so you don't see our faces but they got my pants right they got you know <laughs> my hair right you know that awesome. is cool it's pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty weird but anyway uh so there that's look forward to that write that down everybody uh bloody and bruised dot 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 the untold story of the back room penny penny rock productions is the company that's putting that out so um we played three bars it was a well, there was four. That's four four bars. And you'll know why I'm saying we played four bars in a second. Uh, two of them in Austin. There was one called Steamboat and then the back room. And then in San Antonio, which is only an hour down the road, uh, it was Sneakers and this place called Rockers. Sometimes we'd play two sets, two really long sets, you know, and it was you know, the regular ACDC, Led Zeppelin, but then we did, you know, the new wave. We did Pussycat and L.A. Guns and GNR, and and that's not really anything different than what they were doing with Onyx either. So, but we had this new band name, and they had this, they had me, and we were just rolling around on the weekends playing covers in these four bars, and we, every other weekend or almost every weekend, and it was fun. And then uh, this, so I started this journey in 1987, October of 1987. In March of 1988, we played the second ever South by Southwest music conference. So pause for a second. You guys heard of this conference before? Oh, of course. Of course. It's yeah. Okay, so now it's fucking massive. And it's like a three-week detail and it's a trade show for business like metallica played there because they had that video game coming out guitar hero metallica or whatever it was so back to back to 1988 and it happens every spring break march of 88 thank you rock and pod for getting me the hell out of town during fucking south by southwest (laughs) because it is murder you can't park and all the prices go up Hotels, parking, through the fucking roof. It's terrible. Okay, rant <laughs> over. So anyway, we didn't. We had never heard of it. Like I said, it was 88. It was the second ever South By. And so the guy that booked the back room was like kind of our acting agent, I guess. Jim Ramsey, uh, rest his soul. He's on the phone, and he's like, uh, hey, I know you guys just played Friday Night and packed it, and it was killer, but there's this music conference in town called South by Southwest and we're yawning on the other end of the phone. And he, he's like a uh, hungover probably. And then um, he's like tomorrow it's a Sunday night and I, there's a slot open in this festival and I want you guys to play it. And you only have to play 30 minutes and but we're like looking at him like he's fucking nuts. Go. We just packed it Friday night. You want us to play twice the same weekend. I don't understand that on a Sunday night. What the right in their head, rock and roll, or goes out on a Sunday (laughs) night, blah, blah. They got to get up at 6 a.m. and take out the garbage, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's their job. So, uh, (laughs) he kept explaining and we didn't care, bad attitude. Um, we end up doing it. So it's a Sunday night at the back room. We just played there in front of, you know, 600 people. And he's like, uh, He's like, you know, 30-minute set, and we played covers. We played, like, you know, a handful of original songs. Teasin' Pleasin' might have been one of them. Outlaw might have been one of them. I don't even think we had Sporting a Woody yet. Maybe. It was early. That's early yeah. game. That's early in our game, you know, when you think about the foray. so we played 30 minutes. It was like fifteen people in the club, and we still didn't know what the hell. South by what? We still didn't. Yeah, know you're what like, what... why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, we we did bad attitude. I think I was drinking on singing with a beer bottle. My, you know, I was. We were not on top of our game because we had this bad bad attitude about it. I, I mean, I guess we played okay we're not a very good band in my opinion. I think that's people like that.
4: <laughs> people like this kind of
3: loose rock and roll, bad attitude, you know, yeah. I mean, whatever. I'm, I'm too close to it. Right. So, and I was, I'm, I was probably cursing I was shit. It was just shit attitude. So we're done with our little set, maybe two people at the front of the stage. I love you. You know, they, they saw us Friday. I Can't believe you're playing again. You know, it's like, never went to sleep <laughs> from Friday night. And uh, the rest of it was just like, who the hell are these people? So we get off and the guys are in the back schlepping some gear out and I'm standing over against the wall. Cause there's not really like a dressing room or anything. It's like a, you got a stage and then you got the wall and then you got the back door and there's, that's it. It's an alley where you load and I'm leaning against a wall. Uh, not on my phone because cell phones did not exist. Right. This lady, Celine Armback from SBK Songs, which was a publishing company, approaches me and introduces herself and says, I love you guys. You guys were great. I would love to sit down with you guys and talk about a publishing deal. And my mouth is agape. I'm like, what? <laughs> my reaction was, I'm not in this band. I'm in this thrash man called watchtower. And I'm just a fill in. But if you want to go talk to those guys, they're right there. They're literally six feet away. Just that's Tim. And that's Mark. And that's, you know, just go talk to them. And so she she did. So it was kind of like I kind of was a dick. Well, probably not. But I was short with yeah. her. Right. And so She's like, okay, well, thanks, great set. And I was like, wow, thanks, okay. Goes over there. I didn't even think about it. I didn't think twice about it. Weren't looking f- to do anything like that. Not even on my mind. I'm the singer for Watchtower. Yeah. I get a call the next day, and it was Mark. He goes, he goes, hey, man, that lady was legit. And I'm like, what? Mm. he's like, yeah. Wow. And I'm like, holy shit. So in the, mean, in the meantime, uh, a friend of mine named Julie Hillen had a cassette tape of Dangerous Toys playing live on the radio. It was recorded on a cassette radio boombox. Mm-hmm. There's this thing in uh, KLBJ uh, is the rock radio station in Austin. Mm-hmm. They've been around forever. Al, it used to be album rock, kind of been around forever. Uh, they had this show called local licks. Well, it was called local licks live and they would mic up a band and you'd play. Well, we did it ours at the back room. So it was easy. It was just like a normal regular gig. And it was really early on when I was working with the toys. And I think I went by a different name and the DJ was going around the room like, Hey man, what's your name? And you know, hi, I'm Mark Gary, play drums, dangerous toys. Hey, what's your name? I think I said, "My, my name is Andy luck and I'm the singer. Andy Luck. Andy Luck. Like Andy Luck lately. Have you had have you had any luck lately? Like in luck? <laughs> Andy Luck. Oh, boy, <laughs> Andy Luck. I think for a second I called myself Billy Boy. My first name is William. Well, see, they were dressed up like poison, I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So I can't I went into it kicking and screaming. I was like, I ain't dressing like that. Fuck that. You know? And uh They were like, well, let us tease your hair up. Let me, let's get you looking like a maniac. And I go, and I go, all right. So I wore like bullet belts and combat boots and I look like fucking rogue male. Remember that leather vest and just, I looked like the road warrior, but I had, my hair was, looked like a bomb went off on top of my head. (laughs) And, uh, there's some pictures out there floating around. Please don't Google them. (laughs)
4: Oh, I Uh,
3: totally am. (laughs) Uh, for a very short time, we we were pretty fucking glammed out and very much like I sort of was playing a character, you know, and that might have been Andy Luck. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, this live recording, and then on the other side was an 87 demo for Songs of Watchtower, and they were studio recordings on one cassette. Uh, Julie Hillen mailed that to, uh, Los Angeles, uh, to a management company called TAPCO entertainment. And I knew that she had done that, but I didn't, I had no judgment. I didn't care either way. And then, and then this South by Southwest thing happened. So it might've been a week earlier that this management company had received this tape. I'm getting my timeline off maybe by a week or two, but it happened fast. Uh so let's say Tim Heine from Tapco Entertainment. Here's our and this that story goes like this. Imagine, if you will, the old mogul type desk management office, and you've got this cool desk and, and you've got just stacks of demo tapes that he's re- he or she has received. It was exactly like that in my mind. Imagine the brick cell phone with the curly Q wire. In a uh, some early '80s Corvette, and it's 1988, and you're a manager, and you manage. And this is true. He managed Y and T. He managed Keel. He ma- there's a bunch of other. He, he ended up with Rat and Cinderella as well. But wow. uh, so Tim Heine, badass. He's a badass. So we didn't realize all of these things because it was just a phone call. It resulted from Julie, my friend, sending this tape out there. And he pops in the tape driving on the, the 101, out driving back out to Ventura, where he lived. And he pulled the car over and got the phone out. And he's like, called his office and he's like, find out who the fuck this is. He heard Tease and Pleasing on that live, the first song, Tease and Pleasing. And he, and he call, stopped and called. And I think it was the kind of thing where Tim would. If he didn't like it, he would hit eject and chuck it out yeah, on the, out of the window yeah. on the highway. In my in my fantasy brain, right, that's yeah, what it yeah, yeah. Uh, don't mess with California. You know, don't don't throw tapes on the road. <laughs> you know, don't literally well, back in uh, those days there were probably a lot of tapes on the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've seen a few tapes crushed on the highway before. So um I usually pick them up, make sure they're not mine. So anyway, the uh he, uh, the, the wheels were rolling whether we wanted them to or not. So he called his office and found out, you know, and then we heard from Julie, Hey man, he really dug that. And I, the first thing out of my mouth was, "Did you listen to the watchtower side? Uh, yeah. Right. He didn't even get to it. And I was like, damn it. You're supposed to rewind it. Side a rewind watchtower. Uh, I don't know. It's not, not, she didn't do anything wrong. If anything, she got, she helped. Right. Okay. But then the South by thing was about to help it explode celine armbeck from sbk songs publishing company which later turned into a record label but that's a, a little bit of another story uh they uh we 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 said well have you ever heard of tapco entertainment to celine you know she's like, no what's that we go well you guys are both in Los Angeles and you guys don't know each other you guys need to go have a coffee so we we gave each other their numbers and they hooked up in Los Angeles that week. And they got together with, for dinner or something. And they said, wow, we should do something with this. Let's put our heads together and uh, set some stuff up. So very quickly they said, so we're going to offer, you know, uh, tapco entertainment offered us a management deal and said roughly within 90 days 90 days. That's three months. Within 90 days, basically, if we can secure a full on record deal for you, I own your ass. Yeah. (laughs) And in 90 days, I do not secure a, you know, substantial record deal. We say, we shake hands and we leave the ring. It's over. And we looked at each other and we really got nothing to lose. Who's going to sign this piece of shit? (laughs) You know. because <laughs> we were so young and green, and even though I had some a little bit of experience and had a record or two out by then, and it, that doesn't matter. You don't know shit just because you. I've been in the recording studio. Yay me! Yeah, you don't know shit. So you're you know you're. I was twenty-one, so I think I had turned twenty-two that March of '88. So we say what we say. Fuck it, and we sign it. And I have to tell the Watchtower guys about it, and they were not pleased. And I said, I'll God. I'll let you know if anything further happens. And they were like, God damn it! <laughs> and I was like, I know. God damn it, kind of sucks, but it's a big what if, right? So <clears throat> I tried not to think about it too heavy, and uh, they started setting up showcases. We showcased for all of the major labels. This is before any merger had ever happened. This is in 1988. April, May, June, July. We at the back room, we, we showcased in our hometown, in our the club we pretty much owned. And they came to us and they whined and dined us. And all of them said the same thing You guys are great, man. It's gonna be the next Guns and Roses. And, you know, whatever they said. Yeah. I have red hair and tattoos, and I sing real high. It was, they weren't, weren't hiding it, holding it back that that's where the industry was kind of headed because Appetite broke, finally broke. That record's from like 86, early 87, and it finally broke. Took a year or so, right? But, and I had already seen them play a couple times. Saw them in a club headline, and I saw them open for the cult on the electric tour. And they were badass. It was like seeing a punk band back then, right? Raw. They were pissed. Bad attitude. Late. Starting songs over. Whatever. It was fucking awesome. Just to to see that rawness, you know. Anyway, it happened. We we ended up going with Columbia, and uh, that's where the wheels start rolling even faster. So I have to leave Tower, and then I'm trying to help them, and then I'm. Also packing my bags because we have to pick a producer. Uh, we ended up with Max Norman. He produced this song. What's that song? Crazy Train. You guys are yeah, yeah. Uh, he's an okay. absolute legend. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you know, apparently he was a big deal. No, I love Max. and of course I was, of course I was familiar with his work. Jesus Christ. He's he he helped us really get where the band needed to be because he told the truth. He was a, he worked us like horses.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask if he was a taskmaster and really stayed on you. Yeah,
3: he he was like, you can do better. Again, I'll go, that was 50 takes. I'm getting tired. Yeah, fuck that. Again. (laughs) Okay.
1: So when, when you say you had to choose a producer, was Max Norman like in a pool of guys that were offered to you?
3: Well, it wasn't since it was our first record and, and maybe the label had already worked with him and thought he would be good and his name sort of rung a bell with us. The, yes and no. But the idea behind all that, like like for the second record, Hellacious, there was there was definitely a pool. Of, it was a short list of names and, and we even went to dinner with a few of them and ended up with Roy. But I... Nothing, nothing against Roy Thomas Baker. He, I mean, he's a legend. He, uh, he did that band. See, what are they called? Queen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have to laugh because my life is a dream. Right. So, (laughs) so we probably should have gone with Max a second for continuity. Because I really think he would have brought the songs out a little better. Or he would have said, you guys ain't ready yet. You need to go back in, in, in the garage and write about eight more good songs. And he would have been right, in my opinion. Um, About uh, Hellacious, not to dawn on that, but Hellacious is like half cooked. Like half the songs are really good. The Best of Friends, Give Me No Lip, Gunfighter, Sugar, maybe one more. Line them up. And then there's the other. You know, one's a cover song, which was a lot of people love that cover. The Bad Company, Feel Like Making Love. Anyway, so I was packing my bags. We were we were going to Los Angeles to record in the infamous Sound City Studios, which we had never heard of before. Right. Because we had forgotten, you know, w- when you're reading the backs of your record collection and you see Sound City, it doesn't really, oh, the studio, I need to know where they recorded this record. It wasn't really, you know, what kind of guitars does Paul Stanley use? What you know, where did where was this live album recorded? You know, you're reading and then you just read it again over and over like, you know, your favorite comic book, right? Yeah. That's kind of what it was. So Sound City eventually came back to me when I was in the studio walking around looking at all the sales awards hanging on the wall. Like Out of the cellar was it? Rec- yeah. Fucking Tusk was recorded here. You know, what? Holy Diver. Holy you Diver. Know, shit like that uh, starts yeah. coming to you and you're like, what the fuck? You know. Anyway, so. Legendary Studio had a blast. Max worked our asses off. The but the pre the pre game uh, festivities were, were there was a rehearsal in the lot across the parking lot from Sound City. There was a little rehearsal place you could do some pre production.
2: Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that because we, we had Vinnie, Vinnie Appesey on like a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. And he talking about the making of Holy Diver. And so, some of his funniest memories were doing the rehearsal stuff in that building. And then him and Ronnie and Jimmy Bain and them try, trying to wheel all their stuff across the parking lot to go record the stuff.
3: Yeah, so it's obviously a legendary parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was happy because it was this skateboard company called skull skates right next to the rehearsal place, which is still across the parking lot from sound city. And they actually gave me a skateboard because I was in there all the time going, yeah, this shit's cool, man. And I bought a shirt or something. Go here, just take this deck. I remember it. Well, I, don't, I wish I still had it. It was stolen mm-hmm. and it was called dead guys. So on the bottom of the deck, the artwork was like uh screen prints of Elvis and Jim Morrison and, you know, dead guys, Sid dead guys. Vicious, and it was pretty cool. It's pretty rad. Uh, but yeah, those rehearsals uh, really helped us a lot because scared we had started writing before we got on the plane back in Austin. Uh, Tin Boots as well was brand new. Scared Tin Boots, Queen of the Nile was new. Uh, outlaw Teasing Woody uh, Trouble. Like I said, Trouble was, we, that was the first song that I wrote with those guys. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, we had pre-production. Like, here's some here's some uh, fly-on-the-wall stuff. Uh, so imagine Max kind of visiting the room, you know, every once an hour, you know, coming in and going, play this one for me. And, yeah, we need it. You know, Scared, we play Scared, and we would just start it. And you know how it starts with the vocal right away? It's a strange beginning for a song. Yeah, that was Max's idea because we w- we were coming in with an intro, you know, we had like a a formula we liked. We ended up going with Max's idea because it was like boom. You yeah. know, just verse right away and it was like in that backward sort of symbol thing kind of he created that yeah. was his idea because it kind of was you know how we do it live is one two three boom convert you know and that's fine you know fans are ready to sing that they don't care how you start it 10 boots the the halftime i call it the mosh part that thing Uh, that wasn't that wasn't in there. It wasn't played halftime. It was played straight. It was the whole song was. So I, it was my idea. Well, let's play a halftime there, and it'll give everybody a break because you know the whole song is bing, bang bing, bang 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 bang, right? You know, and that that worked, and Max liked that. But there were a few things like that that sort of just needed more eyes on it. We didn't work these out in the pre-production, but wherever there were, <clears throat> there were these like holes, like especially in Tin Boots where you got a, you got a little intro and then you got a yee and then the solo thing and then you got a verse and then there's a bit and then there's a verse and then there's a bit. Well, he'd stop the tape when we're actually tracking and he'd say shit like, you've got this big fucking hoe right here. You need to put something in there. That's terrible, Max Norman. (laughs) He's English, so I'm just trying. He made Scott put all these like little (coughs) shreddy things between the verses, and it really kept the song alive, like awake, you know, like kept it moving. And I was like, wow, okay. And so we just started to do that anywhere that as needed in all of the songs. And so that we, we learned a lot from taking the lashes from Max.
2: Oh, I bet.
3: Yeah. Uh, so I, I still use what I learned from Max in every project and every song, any song I'm writing. I don't care if it's a country song, a Christmas song. I use the knowledge, that the, the things I learned. Um, so that's pretty much how that all kind of came together. Yeah, because once it happens,
1: man, they strap a rocket to you guys. I mean, you got Max Norman. I mean, just look at, look at the credits on this thing. So you got Max Norman, Produce, Engineers, and Mixes, and then it's mastered by Bob Ludwig. And, I mean, for a debut album, that's some pretty impressive stuff. So they're putting a lot behind you guys.
3: Yeah, we were, and, and this is, I'm not... Uh you know, beating myself up here when I say we're a new band. Yeah, No one knows who we are in, in March of the same year we're recording this record. We, we were like, look, you drinking a beer, playing a cover song. That's wild. So that's just crazy. a few months later. We're what, I'm in California. What I'm going to the cat house and every bar on the sunset strip that you read about, or Heard about or, you know. Yeah, I wanted to get your memory
2: of the Sunset Strip during that era because we were too young to experience it, and we were both living out of state. So was it as amazing being on that strip at the time as I've heard?
3: It was like Bourbon Street, you know, Fat Tuesday. It was like 6th Street on the weekends here in Austin, but every night. And everyone, it was a fashion show. Everyone's dressed up. Everyone's passing out flyers. It was oversaturated, Mm. a bit ridiculous. And you could see famous singers and guitar players holding court on different corners, like, all night long. Like, uh, I ran into David Lee Roth. Well, not ran into him, but he's literally – the lights are off. They're standing in front of the rainbow. Uh, what they is like an Amazon blonde, to, to be straight, not very good looking, but just oh. look like a wrestler, total Amazon rawr! you know, look like a <laughs> wig, just blonde, just <laughs> platinum hair out to here was probably some kind of somebody was probably somebody that worked at a bar, or had a, had a show or, you know, uh, their own show could have been in a band, but it was just some crazy big lady and David Lee Roth, and then his bodyguard, uh, just a big dude. And there's a limo parked there, of course. And they're just shooting the shit, and it's dark. But I realize as I walk past, that's David Lee Roth. And I have a little point-and-shoot 135 Uh. camera in my pocket because I'm a kid from Texas, never been anywhere, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I had I had been to Los Angeles before, but not on the Sunset Strip. I was out hanging with some friends, and and uh, who were in the you know closer to the scene that I was part of with Watchtower, uh, Gene Hoagland, Dark Angel, Testament, yeah, Death, amazing drummer, keep going, yeah. amazing person, yes, uh, uh, Michelle Meldrum, who's passed away, uh, played in Phantom Blue. Uh, played in a band with Gene Hoagland called War God before uh, he joined Dark Angel. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, n- basically Phantom Blue, sort of, kind of, turned into what is now the Iron Maidens because Linda McDonald was in right. Phantom Blue. Anyway, so that was just, that was would have been in 87, like summer 87, late 86. Yeah, 86, 87. I had been out there a couple times. <clears throat> but not in this capacity, not in this mm. scenario.
1: So did you take a picture of Dave?
3: I went up to David Lee Roth, and I looked up at the, it was obviously his handler, and they were laughing and having a great time in the dark under the porch. The porch lights is out. Oh, it's late night, like late, late. And uh, I, I looked up at him, and I was like, do you mind? And he was like, didn't even break conversation with their laugh. He's in the middle of a laugh and he's like, get out of here, kid. Oh, get out of here, kid. And it was like, bummer. And I said, well, can I at least shake Dave's hand? He's like, Dave, Dave just put out his hand like royalty. So I kissed the ring. (laughs) (laughs) Not literally, but I shook a limp, you know, care. I'm get out of here, kid, you know, kind of a thing. No one was rude. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, you know, once I'm nice to you, then everyone else who's walking by is going to come over here and, you know, right, flies to and, shit. Yeah. You know, you were probably the hundred and
2: fiftieth person that had
3: come I up was, to them that. I was, I was at least I wasn't bum rushing them. I right. tiptoed into their situation, and I, I said, and I, and I, I said it's probably not cool to take a picture, but I walked away, and then I backed up and went click, and kind of, I might have <laughs> run like a. You know, <laughs> kid. And it was dark. There was no flash. <clears throat> so you could kind of, I don't have the picture anymore, but I, I printed Aww. it. I knew it was David Lee Roth. I didn't care what anybody else said. Look, it's my picture right. of David Lee Roth. That's an underexposed <laughs> shit. Dude, that could be anybody. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, the strip was kind of crazy. Too many bands, so much going on.
1: So at the time you're there, I mean, are you guys known in the scene because are you coming in like an outsider or that nobody knows who you are or they That's treat exactly you like it. shit? Or... That's exactly
3: it. Yeah. No one knows who we are. The we were going to the cat house basically telling people if we if we wanted to get any treatment, we would have to like beg because no one knew who we were. Yeah. Um but in the if there were industry people out there that everyone else knew, it was easier for us because there was a hint of red carpet because they were able to lean into to the door person and go, hey, I've got my boys here. They're signed to Columbia. We just picked them up, and they're going to be happening. The shit's great. Bye, bye, bye. It'd be, like, Oh, that's cool. Hey, nice to meet you guys. So there was a lot of that. And then a year later it was like, come on in, you know, so yeah, we were no one when we went out there. But we were we were going to the cat house and you could see Axel and you could see, you know, members of Pussycat everywhere. And Ricky Rackman was just a club DJ kind of a guy. He was a business owner, right? I saw Ricky Rackman's band play. Oh yeah. I saw him sing. He had a band called Virgin. He'll be the first one to tell you that they weren't very good, but <laughs> I love Ricky, uh, because Man. he's like that. He's yeah. yeah, honest and straight and loud and wears his heart on his sleeve and tells you what he thinks and tells you the truth. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting. There was that going on and this was during the recording and, and. There were some nights that I knew that I had a big studio day where I, that I wouldn't go out. But we were young and stupid, so we went out all the time. There were moments where I was so tired. I mean, we would burn burn all night. Like I would get back to my apartment at like 3, 4 in the morning just like, ah, oh, what's my name, you know. <laughs> um, but it was, I wouldn't have changed a bit anything. Because it was a learning experience. It was kind of, I was living a, a, a very fast dream as a young rocker. And it was kind of cool. Uh, and I'll never forget it. And I'm glad that some of us had these shitty little cameras because I still have the photos. Of, yes, just hanging out at, at, you know, Sound City and, and what have you. And. You know, going to the rainbow with Max Norman because people knew him there.
2: Let me ask you a couple things about some of the songs. Um, I was never a lyrics person growing up, so I never really delved into what lyrics were. But, and then just recently, I realized that "Scared" is actually a tribute to Alice Cooper, with several you know references to his songs in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that you grew up a big fan of his.
3: Well, I, I feel like as much as anybody. I mean. I can't remember the first time i I actually had uh albums by Alice, but I had a couple of forty fives that's how old Alice is uh, yeah. <laughs> it didn't is. mean for that to come out nice. that way but so I'm a kind of a child yeah. uh mid seventies anyway what ten eleven twelve, and I have alice cooper forty five records you know school's out no more mr nice guy i never cry uh 18 stuff like that and i had kiss and queen 45s too but i had kiss and queen albums did you ever have a chance to talk to alice about yes. the song yes uh and he appreciated that very much um um the truth is and you you'll hear it here not first cuz i've said this before but the truth is is that I was on a huge Alice kick during this late 80s time. I picked up a bunch of vinyl and was back on this resurgence of Alice. But in the 70s, when I was young, as I started to say earlier, it's, it's true that I would go to the skating rink and they would play Bee Gees and Kiss and Elton and Alice Cooper and Queen and, you know, Bye bye, Miss American Pie. You know, they all that AM <clears throat> Gold, which all of the bands were on AM radio. AM Gold. It was mm. <clears throat> Beth and Detroit and Rock and Roll All Night and and Eighteen and School's Out and uh Saturday Night Fever and and uh Shadow Dancing and and you know all that old early soul and funk and hard rock and what proto metal they would play at the skating rink. And I was like, this is the greatest thing. This is the greatest time to be alive. I was a fan of Alice as probably as much as I was anybody else. Uh, but I had a lot, you well know, like I've already fessed up. I had queen and kiss and Elton coming out of my ears. So as far as record collection, So to fast forward to me writing the lyrics for Scared. Um, I was on this big uh, uh, Alice kick. So Mama's Lace and Whiskey, stop. Lace and Whiskey, that's an album title. Uh, There's a lyric somewhere. It might even be, it might even, I can't remember what song it is, but in the whisper part and the breakdown of Scared, I say, why are these bones on the floor? And then I say, for some odd reason, I say burgundy and white, and I swear those are from—I'm plagiarizing. <laughs> those are from those are from Alice lyrics somehow, some way. That's imagery, right? Roses, on, roses on white lace. Yeah, could could have been could have been, but it's but there's something uh, there's a lyric and on it might be on a song on Killer. I can't remember <clears throat> where he said he uses the line burgundy and white. Oh, okay, describing the color of something, which could be blood, mm. on lace, burgundy and white. That's what that sounds like. Sounds like spilt yeah. wine to me. But yeah, so there's right. that's what I love about Alice is he's able to paint pictures, and take you into a movie that you don't have to watch. You can it's audible, right? Yeah.
2: Incredible uh, lyricist. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The biggest one that no one ever gets or seems to just miss is the very first line in the song: "Who is the man in the white vest?" I got to get out of here. I got to, It's a straight jacket. The white vest ballad of Dwight Fry was a big one for me. Fry. Yeah,
1: love that song.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, he's in a, a padded room and wearing a a white a white vest, a straight jacket. Right. Yeah,
1: I got to get out of here.
3: Yeah. So, you know, why do I like this? Why do I like being scared? Why am I here? What's going on? Oh, let's, you know, let's crank the crank on the jack in the box and boom. Oh, oh, oh shit. Oh, i am put the clown back in and do it again. You must like it. So the song is built off of all of that stuff. And then that's some of cool. the other songs, Take Me Drunk, I'm Home, that's a stupid bumper sticker and a <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> truck stop. Yeah. That's
3: a truck stop. We did that all the time.
4: you the my mind, You
3: know, lyrically, I think Sporting the Woody is a saying that a friend of mine was emulating that he saw in a movie he might have been in short circuit, some, the Woody, somebody said that. And I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> so once I realized it's like, Oh shit, that's, that's a title. That's, that's going to be easy. That song wrote itself, you know? Right. Yeah. Why was there no video for that song? There wasn't a video for what? Sporting a Woody? Well, it's a song about dicks, I guess, if If Aerosmith can do... <laughs> I guess I
2: answered my own question.
3: I guess um, if Aerosmith would have made a video for a 10-inch record...
2: Big 10-inch? Record. I mean,
3: uh, yeah, the uh, and then uh, ZZ Top with... Uh, shit, Pearl Necklace. They got it all. Yeah, Slip Inside yeah. My Sleeping Bag. Yeah. Tube Snake Boogie. Tube, tube Snake. There you go. Tube Snake Boogie and Sporting the Woody and uh, my big 10-inch. That's uh, th- that's obvious. <laughs> those, are, those are things that, you know, maybe videos shan't be made of. <laughs> yeah. And that's a song, too, that takes me back because I'm still
1: pretty young. I'm still living with my parents, and I'm listening to all this music. And there'd be some songs like – Oh, don't let the parents catch me listening to this one. Or you mm. giggle when you listen to it. I'm the man by Anthrax. You know, mm. me and my buddies always felt like we were getting away with something by listening to that. Or mm. Wasted Rock Ranger by Great White was another one that you would always kind of like giggle at and be like, don't let the adults hear you listening to this. Sporting a Woody. Music by Horny Young Dudes for Horny Young Dudes. Sure.
3: I love it. And And girls too. Yeah. They love that song yeah (laughs) so that's it and and like the big vikings the you know nowadays you at a dangerous toy show you see the big like tattooed biker looking guys with long beards you know they don't have any hair anymore so they grow it on their face and that's fine uh that will be me soon probably so the point is that i'm making is they know all the words to the ballads they know all the words to queen of the Nile. They sing yeah. "Queen of the Now" with me. I was wondering why that was never a single, because that that has radio play written all over it. Ironically, there was a single for Sporting a Woody," uh, and they—this is so stupid—but they they flipped, they edited the word "shitty." Well, Those women in the city that make me feel shitty. So the word "shitty," they had the women in the city that make me feel, <laughs> you know, it's totally stupid. And then there was a version women in the city make me feel beep, ah, where they beeped yeah. it out. And it was just, I was like, what this is, who cares? What do you, what? So I laughed at the label. I was like, you really think that this is worth doing these edited versions? And just so you can make this song a single, their argument was, dude, it's a fun little boogie woogie song. People love this song. And I go, well, you're, I, I get that. And I'm, I can be proud in that extent, but, for you to go beyond art form and fuck with it just to get it somewhere else that you think it's going to, and it didn't really fly. It was, it was the, it was a CD world. So there's not really a B side, but it was the B side of Queen of the Nile. They did try to push Queen of the Nile as a single, but it was after it was late in the game. And scared had done a lot of damage, and that's all people had. I mean, anything else that came, radio tried, and it, I mean, they still played. I mean, everybody was still playing, you know, deep cuts, in my opinion, I'll just call them deep cuts off off of that record. And they were Queen of the Nile and Sporting and the Woody. And, but Queen of the Nile lyrics came from an obsession that I had with, uh, that I still have somewhat with, uh, Egyptian folklore mm. the pharaohs and cleopatra and the sphinxes and almost like mixed with sort of like spells and you know their uh the tombs and all the gold and the mm. the idols and the masks and the you know and i thought it was beautiful that they mm. were so glammed up <laughs> their, their religious beliefs were so glammed up, you know, everything's gold and painted and they buried everybody with food and wine and gold, you know, and artif, you know, crosses and, you know, talisman and, you know, it's, they were serious about it. So that lyric kind of comes and it spins on the, the Cleopatra thing, but do you guys remember the George Michael video father figure? Oh, sure. You remember the, the, the model that was in the video that had the Cleopatra haircut? That helped me go, oh, wait, it's Cleopatra's thing, you know. Yes, I'm a George Michael fan. Yes, I'm a Wham fan. So I, every time that video would come in, I would watch it, and that was sort of an a little somewhat of a weird inspiration. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have brought it up. But that tied in with the, the stuff I was into already was – kind of helped me create the, that storyline. And I yeah. love those lyrics. It's probably some of the best lyrics I've ever written. And if you notice, I feel like the rhyme scheme is kind of weird. It doesn't really. It is doesn't, weird. Not all of them rhyme. Not all of those lines rhyme. And I left it, and it was uh, based on uh, audible emotion instead of actual rhymes.
1: That's pretty cool. I always like that one. Well, another song on the album I like that we haven't really talked about yet it's got such an awesome groove to it. It's one of my favorites on here is Feels Like a Hammer.
2: Yeah.
3: Love that song. Yeah. Yeah, that was um I'm I, I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth here because I saw it every night when we were on tour with the Cult. We would play that song. And then eventually we we dropped any kind of ballad from our show and Queen of the Nile was the only sort of instant queen's not really a ballad but it ha- it's very on it's light in the pants you know it's just it's 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 heavy enough but it's still the melody is major and it's kind of happy and it's it's you know what i mean it's catchy catchy yeah. there you go but we were on the cult tour we were playing feels like a hammer like every night queen was in there too i can't remember what songs we weren't playing because oh, we only had 40 minutes of music anyway It was our first album, right? Uh, Ian Asprey from The Cult be on the side of the stage over here So he'd be I'd be facing the audience in like corner of my eye I'd, oh shit Ian's over there watching us every night sing that song Love that song I don't know there'd be a true reason as to why that didn't become a single. I mean, dude, you guys keep bringing up songs. They can't all be singles.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, but, you know, you got to have some tracks that are a little bit deeper that are awesome, and I just think that's one of them. I don't, they don't all have to be singles. I just think they're great songs.
3: I appreciate that, but, it, you know, there were there were other outside people who, uh, who had my respect. Was, I don't know why that's not a single, you know i wasn't pointing at you guys no
2: Uh, i paula Salvatore is listed as the backing vocals on that song who who is that
3: yeah uh that is uh the receptionist at sound city
2: no kidding wow
3: yeah uh max had done a lot of records there and they were friends um but she was she's a singer and I believe she's the manager now at Sound City, like the new refurbished Sound City Studios. <clears throat> she's, I think she's the property manager there now. That's cool. Um, And she's in the business, you know. She's in the record business, so she's a performer as well. Uh, Fairly recently, I can't... Oh, you know where it was? It was at Rockin' Pot. Someone walked up to me and showed me uh, the Toys CD, and it had Paula's autograph on it. Oh, really? She, nice. They had run into her somewhere and figured out who it was, put two and two together, and brought it up. And holy shit, you know, and had her sign it. And she was like, what? That's crazy. You know, and she had, who knows? She may have for- forgotten all about it. Maybe not. Who knows? But at Rock and Pod, somebody came up to me and had a Paula Salvatore story. So. Yeah, That's only rocket cool. Rock and Potter, you got to get that. Yeah, it was. <laughs> well, Nerds Unite. That's great. Yeah, That's what, another great thing about Rock and Potter. So, so yeah, uh, me and Mike Harmonize really great. Mike Watson, bass player, Harmonize really great together on everything. Scared, you know, all, all, anything in there, on there, it's me and Mike. And uh, he's a great writer. He wrote the lyrics for Giving no a Lip. And that's, I know that's on the second record, but he wrote Best of Friends, also second record. But on the first record, he wrote lyrics for 10 Boots. There's more. I'm just going blank. Um, so Max is like, why don't we try a, a, getting a different vocal on here? Like something that's just a bit of a different timbre and color. And, you know, that way it'll give it a, A slightly different spin. So he got, he got Paula in there and she ripped on the chorus a couple of times and that's all it needed. And Mike Watson is still in there, but there's like a three part harmony now on that chorus. That's not there when it was ever played live after that. So in the studio, there's actually a three part instead of a two part, but that's who that is.
2: That's cool. It's yeah.
3: such an epic-sounding
2: chorus. It's so big-sounding. Yeah. That's what I love about it.
3: I love those chords. Yeah. Scott's really wow. good at those at those weird kind of climbing staircase sus chord shit. And those are in Scared. Those are in Queen of the Nile. They're, they're all over the record. I think he got it from this guy, Eddie Van Halen. You heard of him?
2: I think I've heard of him. Uh,
3: What he got some from some of that stuff from this other guy, uh, Warren DiMartini. Yeah, they use that a lot. Eddie and Warren do that a lot. Uh, George Lynch does too.
1: Right, I was just going to say that.
3: Yeah. So, and I think it fit. Those were those were the guys of the time, and that's you know Scott Scott loves Tony Iommi, you know, but. But as far as getting busy on the guitar, he likes to get busy on the guitar. So those guys were were staying busy and still being colorful without uh masturbation.
1: No, it's good stuff. Another thing I always think about when I think about dangerous toys in general, and especially this album, you guys got an album with some pretty iconic album art on it. Mm. You know, the the logo the clown who's bright and then the background's kind of dark and dingy it really jumps out it's got like uh same kind of thing like iron maiden where if somebody mm-hmm. had no idea who that was and was just flipping through looking at records odds are they're gonna grab an iron maiden album or a kiss album or this dangerous toys album Do you guys got any say in the artwork or is that just something that's provided
3: that's a good question so it being our first record and we're green and you know, let us figure that out, kid. Get out of here. You know, that that never that never happened. There was a little bit of rub um by way of and, and no one was doing anything wrong. It was here here it story goes like this. So back in the day there was these things called fax machines. And and uh remember. uh the manage, manager Tim Heine, who was in my stories earlier was faxing from management office and I didn't have a fax machine. I had to walk. I didn't have a car. I had to walk to the copy place, you know, half a mile away, not bad and go, yeah, hey, you got a fax for me. And the, yeah, what's the name? And they would just hand you what it faxed, you know? Wow. So I'm looking at, and I still have these faxes by the way. Uh, there was this company called the illusion factory and, And uh, these guys have been doing some sketches via discussions that I had had or we had had with management about what is a dangerous toy? What is what's going on? What are we going to do? We don't have a real logo yet or anything. And this is all this shit's happening fast. And I'm like, what is a dangerous toy? Hmm, okay, well, you know, maybe a jack-in-the-box. You know, maybe a dildo. Maybe <laughs> a, a clown dildo. Maybe a jack-in-the-box dildo. I don't think
2: that would fly on the record cover.
3: But... No, no, but that's where kind of our dirty um, little minds were were planted, and right dangerous toys we were stuck with that fucking name the label they liked it the management they liked it we were we were there we had to we had to we had to shit or take a walk right so we we started in with this clown thing and these faxes had these really cartoony round faced little cute little tiny cowboy hat clown faces really round and bubbly that With a little tiny, you know, really cute yeah, shit that would be on, like, baby pajamas and shit. Oh, God. In my opinion. (laughs) In my opinion. And I'm, like, calling them going, is this a joke? What's going on here? See, I like your knee-jerk reaction, Chris, because you're saying that, like, you cannot believe that because you're so used to seeing this maniac. Oh, yeah, that's clown. true. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. So if you go back to the beginning, where there's absolutely zilch to think or have, because there is nothing, you're pulling shit out of the air. <clears throat> and so are they in their defense, the illusion factory, and my manager. And I'm like, this is terrible. No, there's no way in hell. I don't even want to use this artist anymore. And they're like. This is the these are the best artists in the business. This company does their artists and their this company does promotionals for everybody and everything out for in in the business. And I'm like, well, you know let's have a party for them, but they ain't gonna draw my fucking album cover <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: and he's like I, I said and, and before he could re- retort, I said, I got a guy in San Antonio right now that can tomorrow, can come up with a sketch, It'll, you know, not full color, but a sketch that'll blow this into oblivion and you won't even remember what this looked like. May I proceed? He goes, there's no way, there's no way that you can do that. And I go, can't, will you give me a chance? Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Total doubting me. Went, got the drawing. Oh. Oh, oh I know what it was. I think I called Tom, my buddy Tommy Pons down in San Antonio, and he drew this fucking thing, and I think I gave him the fax number, and I said, fuck it, just fax it. I go, can you describe it to me? And it's like he's got fangs, and he's, you know, this scary-ass eyes. Are, originally, his eyes were whited out like Cotton Eye Joe. There's no pupils. There's just white. So it was fucking freaky looking
1: is that is this the sketch that's inside the sleeve? No. No, that's not the one. No. Okay.
3: No. Uh it's online, you can find it. It's the I think it's got a uh bullseye backdrop. It's like a purple and red, maybe purple and white circle bullseye thing with the clown over it and he's got crossbones. And his eyes are white and his, he's drooling and he's got really like alien you know HR Giger fangs dripping oh, wow you know? but it's the cl- it's it's our clown you can tell right yeah you'll you'll find it you'll go oh that must be it I, and he described it to me I go well that sounds killer I don't even remember seeing his sketch yeah, I think he just went ahead and faxed it me at me talking to Tommy on the phone, just fax it, fax it to this guy. And if they, if, if they like it, then there'll be some revisions and, and you'll be doing our album cover. And he was like, hot dog. So <laughs> the rest is history. Obviously the, uh, the original version got dumbed down slightly. The teeth were a little edge, you know, yeah. got, got an edge put on them instead of them because they were like needles. It was they, wow. freaky looking. And then the eyes had the rainbow kind of pupil, and then, and then we had to think about, well, he's a jack in the box, and then he's a. Or we used to have our walk-on music, "Toys in the Attic" by Aerosmith. You know, toys and to yeah. toys and to toys and to what in the attic, and so that was on our minds all the time, because we heard that song all the time, you know one of the greatest rock and roll boogie woogie numbers ever written. Yeah, And so it was kind of like, you know, it was was our dessert all the time. So that was in my head. And I was like, well, this background can be like he's in a room, in a, a box, in a box, you know, locked up in the attic, forgotten about because he's in asylum because he's a maniac. And if you look, there's there's like etches on the wall, like how many days he's been in there kind of thing. And the rest is history. That's how that happened. Um, Did you guys ever see those promotional jack-in-the-boxes? I saw you
2: pull one out on an interview you did like a year ago. Yeah. um, If you'll let me, I can do that.
3: I can play that game again. Give me a sec. Well, let's hope it doesn't fall apart as I demonstrate here. Oh, wow. This is the illusion factory. This is a version of the illusion factory for for you guys. I know that that most you you have listeners and maybe not watching this, but you can see how the face is kind of round and balloony. Mm-hmm. That's ba- it's based on a sketch that was from the original, but it worked well for this, I think, because it's archaic looking. It's kind yeah. of like a little bit. It's rough edge, and it's on all. Four sides and it's on the, the lid as well. So this was sent. There was like two hundred of these made. Here's the bottom. It's it's actually in pretty fucking good shape. And it's just made of some kind of resin, right? And then stained, I guess. Uh made to look like wood. It reminds me of the box on Hellraiser. Yeah, the Hellraiser yeah. box. Yeah. yeah. So which I love. Uh so this is this was I think about two hundred of these were sent. And just for people listening, it's it's if you if you throw the horns and you spread the horns as wide as you can with your hand, that's about how wide the box is. Yep. So did this go out for radio stations? Five or six inches, right? Yes, radio stations, maybe some magazine promos, you know, M T V, whatever. Uh and and no one no one knew of who we were yet. So then they open up a box and they see this shit and they're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> there's probably a bio and a, and a there's a uh, story and it's from Columbia and blah, blah, blah about the band. And so there's a latch here and I don't want to just like flick it and like, it's a fucking Jack in the box. There's a clown man. in here. It's going to go, boing, 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 you know, <laughs> but I don't want to like trust it. It'll blow the hinges off the back. I've already, Replaced it. I don't know if you can see. I've replaced a couple of the screws. Look, like one yeah. of these screws is not like the <laughs> other because uh, they were just those are rivets glued in. I think so. I'm gonna gently open this, yeah. and you'll oh, see. Gosh. So the cassette would pop out, and the spring in this fucking thing, wow, is like a shotgun. So the tape would go, Bring. it was not tested. It was not market tested. So this, this cassette would hit the ceiling. Bring. People getting hit in the face with cassette tapes. Yeah, and there's a little, uh, see the little spring-loaded cassette holder, Yep. It's like a little trigger there. There's a spring on that, and then there's a spring under this, this really <laughs> terrible-looking clown. Uh <laughs> With a oh, stupid not... little cowboy hat, and he's got a, a hangman's noose. They're trying to make him more sick and menacing by putting a hangman's noose on him, which is a good try. Now, if you look closely, <clears throat> his bottom teeth are kind of gone. Uh-huh. They were a little longer, and if you see the teeth on the top, some of them are jagged and longer. So these te- it's fragile. So these teeth, a lot of them had broken off. So obviously broken had, teeth. Yeah, broken teeth. So obviously I had uh, I like the way you think. So uh I had stupid me had a little bit of time one day and I decided well I want to put him give him some more teeth and make him look fucked up, you know. So those are toothpicks. <laughs> <laughs> I painted some toothpicks brown and black and yellow and I shoved them up in there and I glued them and then I broke them off toothpicks. Uh, it wow. looks like it was made that way. Yeah, yeah it does. Well, this <laughs> could have been in their prototype too, something similar. Anyway, that's that. And a very cool promo item. Yeah. If I don't say so myself. See again, Never...
1: that's Columbia really taking the time and doing it right with you guys.
3: Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, they, between management and the publishing company and they, they really cared about, you know, what was about their investment. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we were, we were happy with that. Wow. That's cool. You know, like we didn't, they didn't tell us they were doing these until later yeah. you know, or until they were already done. you know, we saw one and we're like, what the fuck? How come we don't have one of these? And
2: then, you know, have you ever had a fan
3: bring one up to you to sign or anything? I was just about to, uh mention some storytelling about this prom promotional item. Um fell in hard times years ago and had to sell off some things and it happens, right? It happens to everybody. And uh I sold mine for like 150 bucks online and um sold some of my hair, cut all my hair off in the mid nineties. Like literally had a, a flat top kind of thing. And uh sold my hair 150 bucks again. Seemed to be a magic number. Uh sold my old hat. I don't know if you remember my hat, an old photo said hail bound on it. Yep. Sold that. Sold some boots, cowboy boots I wore in the and video, shit like that. Anyway, the jack in the box. Uh I sold mine. So I don't know, a couple years later. A friend of mine who played guitar in a punk rock band called Ridland Kids who were under the Sony blanket. I can't remember if they were at, you know, I don't know what label they were on, but it was under the Sony blanket. And he was, he became friendly with some of the reps there. And he was out on the road, and he went to the Sony office, and he walked into his rep's office. Hey, man, we're on the road playing tonight, and we're nearby. Just wanted to come sign... By and say hi, and he's like, "Yeah, have a seat." He sits down, and this box here that I just showed you guys was on their desk. Wow! And he sees it, and he's like, "Holy shit! I know those guys!" And they're like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah, they're from Austin." Oh, really? I don't even know. I just thought it was weird. And it's on here. You could, here, you want to give it to him? That would be awesome. And he's like, "Holy shit! Really?" So he takes it. He's on the road with it in his suitcase. He shows up to uh, ironically a broken teeth show. And he walks up to me and he goes, dude, and presents it to me. And then I proceed to tell, I'm shocked. And he tells me the story and I, pre- I I, proceed to tell him the story I just told you about hard times. I sold mine. I sold mine. I needed money. So obviously the universe, if you believe that stuff, wants me to have one.
1: That's wild. As it should be.
3: Can't make that shit up. No, no you can't. That's so- awesome.
1: <clears throat> well then if we're talking about the uh artwork in the album got to talk about the photograph on the back taken by legendary photographer mark weiss you yep. we had to hang out with him a little bit at rock and pod where's it taken and tell us the story about the photo shoot that day
3: there's a place called sunset valley which is technically just south austin sunset valley i think if we give credit in the record sunset valley i think we thanks to sunset valley um there was it's not there anymore but there was this old stable kind of goat corral kind of a thing and there might have been a you know a tin barn structure on it and it was overgrown and I always eyeballed it every time I drove by because I was like, man, that's weird seeing this, you know, big city. And then in the middle of nowhere, there's this plot of land that obviously someone's holding on to for big money. And, uh, it, you know, it's kind of in a neighborhood. There's residential nearby because I was living literally just a mile away, like one mile away. And uh, it could have been marked during that, on that day saying like, well, Hey, what, you know, do you got any locations we could go to? I don't know. You know, I don't know where to go. And it's like, Oh, there might be a couple of places. Um, there's this one place. And it first, first thing that came out of my brain was this little horse stable looking place. That's right up the road. And I, and I tried to tell him where it was and I couldn't tell him where it was. I go, if you turn down this street, this street is named blah, blah, blah. You just turn, you can't fucking miss it. You'll be driving down a st- residential, and then all of a sudden there's this big plot of land next to uh, a football stadium. I don't you know, it's a high school stadium kind of thing. But there's this plot of land in between residential and this football stadium with a huge, giant parking lot that this is adjacent to, connected to kind of thing. That's it. He goes, meet you there in an hour. I called all the boys. We all knew where it was. We're all living close by. Went over there. Hi, I'm Mark Weiss. Nice to meet you, Mark. Tell us what to do. I'll never forget it.
1: So the record company sends him, huh?
3: Yeah, hired hired by the record company. Because he was a big deal. You know, all his stuff was doing well, and obviously he worked well with the bands because he's a rocker, and he wasn't just some, you know, professional photographer. He was a rocker, too, you know, who happened to be good, good eye, you know, good ideas on how to get people to sort of sell what it is that you're trying to do here, so...
1: Yeah, because even in the photo, you guys look like a hard rock band from Texas without even knowing nothing about you.
3: It's funny. It's funny because it looks like we're climbing a tree. Yeah, it <laughs> does kind of look like it. <laughs> but the band's called Dangerous Toys, so obviously there's some youth, you know, so it's kind of, there's some there's something in there that makes the photo work. Whether you like it or not, there is something in there that makes a photo work with, with the band yeah. and the attitude. And, oh, look at these guys climbing a tree. That's weird. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm leaning up against a fence. So, yeah, that was that. I learned a lot. I keep saying that. But, you know, we we didn't know. We Sure, we had taken band photos before. We thought they were pretty good. And I, I still think that they were pretty good. But having someone who does it all the time, some supervision, he was able to really kind of mold something cool that day.
1: Right, and it sets you guys apart from what else is going on. So, you know, then, like, you got guys on their Harleys riding down the Sunset Strip, you know, all the L.A. They're on top of a building with a city backdrop or something. But this sets you apart, you know. Mark probably knew that, you know, so this is perfect because... It shows you are hard rock, but it also shows you're different from everything else that's out there right now.
3: I think that was by default because yeah. we don't we don't ride. I think motorcycles are badass. I've been in love with motorcycles my whole life, but I don't ride. So <clears throat> that wasn't real. If we would you know rent a bunch of Harleys and have us sitting on, or even like hot rods, of, you know that's just not. We didn't do that. So the bullet belt and the leather jacket that I'm donning that day, that was really me. That's what I wore all the time.
1: Well, I suppose when Mark calls you, he doesn't say, Hey, get dressed up and come down here. No, he says, come he over here in an hour.
3: Yeah. It was easy for us to just show up in some jackets and boots and go, here it is. And he was like, yeah, looks great. There was no like, Hey, hold on a second. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the the story Eddie Ojeda told us at Rockin' Pot about his shoes. Remember that? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. On, the, on the on the cover shot of Stay Hungry, when it's the band photo, you look at his shoes, and he was saying, "I like comfortable shoes," and I didn't know they were going to shoot our feet.
4: <laughs> I thought it was
3: going to be from the waist up, and that's what I get for thinking. But he said record company somebody gave him shit about his shoes you know so i don't know what his shoes look like but i think they're just brown obviously they didn't bother me
2: i don't think anyone noticed no No. that's
3: that's funny (laughs) that's funny but but the the attention to detail is great and probably eddie didn't think anything of it and his band was like "Ah, that's eddie who gives a shit but then someone who's eyeballing the photographs and doing the layout of the album cover is like, Hey, I got to make a phone call. What the fuck is it? Really? Is this the shot you guys want to use? Look at Eddie's shoes. And people are like, Oh yeah. Okay. And then they call the band and the band's like, what the fuck. Yeah. It's kind of weird. It is weird. But if that wouldn't have happened, if it, if you would have been wearing the perfect shoes, we wouldn't have this cool story. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Sunset Valley, Texas, is where that photo was taken. It was a great day. It was, the weather was good. We, um, uh, he took us all to see Bon Jovi, Skid Row. We did. We had never heard of Skid Row, his new band. Blah blah blah. My friends touring with my friend Bon Jovi. So got us all in, and he took a couple of quick snaps. I think one of the photos of me and John was uh, in Metal Edge, like a year later. And you can see I'm wearing the same shirt that same I'm dressed exactly the same as I was in the photo for the album cover. Oh
4: yeah.
3: Maybe I got rid of the bullet belt. I'm not going (laughs) to walk into a, that's a bit much. I was tired too. I probably wasn't going to walk around with a bullet belt on at a Bon Jovi concert.
1: So then I guess I got one more question about the layout of the CD in the back there's a palm mhm what is up with that is that something you guys put in there or is that just something they added or
3: well they needed another uh panel right they needed a frame they needed another panel i think tommy the, the artist drew that that uh you know the clown reach you know coming at slightly through the lid reaching for the mallet
1: yeah that's awesome
3: um and it was like a grayscale so it wasn't going to be they didn't it wasn't colored it was probably something he did uh, on a request from management because we needed another panel. You got the lyrics on just a, on one side and well we're kind of got this whole other side of the sleeve on the inner inner sleeve here. I had written that I, I don't really like to call it a poem, but I guess it's a poem. Uh, I had written that and I was. He, he, Tim had management had called me and said, Hey, we need an, we need something. We got anything, some, something like what you know. And, well, I wrote this poem. You want to print that? Yeah, fax it to me, see what it is. And that was it. I didn't change anything on it, I just wrote that out like in a stupor, like late night. I think I just wrote that. And uh, when I think about that poem, the part that kind of sticks out odd to me is the something about life is not just a plate of milk and cookies or something, cookies and milk or something like that. It brings you down to earth for a second because it's kind of it's a bunch of kind of hippie shit. Yeah. About sort of like it's karma and it's.
1: No tears, no funerals. But not always a glass of milk with cookies either.
3: Yeah, you don't want to think that life is gonna be easy all the time and you don't want life to be hard. But it is, so it's kind of this circle that you're living in and you don't really you just have a turn signal, but that's you have to decide to go left or right. So you you is it gonna be box number one, door number two, slide number three? You know. You don't know. So I think that's where I was in my head when I wrote that.
1: And then the poem is credited to William, which we learned today is your first name. That's my first name.
3: And a lot of people don't know that. Uh, And they... They put it together later, maybe, or they ask me in an interview, "Who the fuck is William?" why is I it- only
2: knew it because uh, I booked his flight for Rockin' Pod. Ah, yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. You, you could have told me who wrote the poem in the back, Sinzak, when you found out. But now I just well, it's found better out coming today. from William himself than from <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah, uh,
3: they the uh, I only get called William uh, in grade school and at the doctor's office, the DMV, places like that. Yeah, I, I answer to William in those professional places. Um, my parents didn't even call me William; uh, it's family name. My dad was named William, but I'm not a junior. Like even my dad called me Jason all the time. So, like, never ever called me William or Billy or my dad went by Bill. So,
2: well, and the clown's name is Bill.
3: Yeah, Bilzybub, which is just a spin on Bilzabub. So and I think that was me and Tommy having a conversation. What are we gonna call this stupid ripoff of Eddie <laughs> with Clown Makeup? Yeah. Oh, how about Billsy Z- Bub? Bill's Billsy Z- Bub, like Bill's Z- Bub. Okay, I love it. Perfect. It was it was hmm. literally went like that. I thought it was interesting that the
2: album came out kind of around the same time as the uh Stephen King's It mini series.
3: And Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That's right. And if you if you remember the clown masks that those guys were wearing, those actors were wearing in Killer Clowns, it's strange that some of them sort of resemble the sketches from the Illusion Factory, the ones on the jack-in-the-box and the ones that I described in those early faxes that I said, fuck to the no. <laughs> we ain't using that shit. And a lot of people thought that Tommy was... Maybe he was and didn't feel it. Maybe he was ghosting that, but he wasn't intentional. Mm. Uh, Killer Clowns as well as It. But even It kind of had a round face. Yeah. And so when you think about the Joker, old Joker comics, his face is really long. He's got this chin that looks like a ball sack, you know, that thing. Whatever is going on there, I feel like is where it's coming from. So it's a lot of things. Sure, it's Eddie from Iron Maiden. It's sure it's the Joker. Sure, it's Killer Clowns. Sure, it's it. It's all of that stuff. So the people who are afraid of clowns, they don't care where Tommy got it from, (laughs) they just don't like it. (laughs) Or do they? You see where I'm maybe going they with like, this? That, yeah, that Maybe they like that. they like being scared. They, yeah, they like. that ties in exactly. They see yeah. you know where I'm at. That ties in with the song. It ties in with the the whole idea behind the name of the band and kind of worked awesome. out. Kind of worked. Yeah. Kind of worked out.
1: Yeah, I'd say so.
3: Yeah, I mean, we didn't have, you know, we don't have much of a career after that first record, and so we just milked the shit out of that first record. And that, I'm, we're fine with that. Um, sure, there's new songs. Sure, there's new songs that are, aren't recorded yet that are done being written. Sure, we put out three more studio records after that debut. Mm-hmm. Live album, live DVD. That first album became a, an underground classic, if you will. Yep.
1: I think so, yeah.
3: Um, I'm not trying to give it its own legs I think that it kind of speaks for itself because there's a lot of fans that swear by it and tattoo it on their bodies and whatever so uh, I feel I feel good about it Was
1: there anything extra recorded during the sessions of this that didn't make the album that might be out there somewhere nope. No no
3: nope. no we had we had some other songs that had been being played live prior to the record deal, you know, that we had written that we were just playing for fun. And I can't even think of any titles, but there was probably a good handful of five, six songs that Hmm. we didn't really feel they were strong enough to present. Or if we did, they, we were correct and they didn't get chosen. So part of the, Part of the story about us going out, it wasn't like we we got on a plane and went to L.A. and our friends drove our U-Haul out with some gear and, and we just went to Sound City and stayed there. We, The label had rented us some cars and apartments, so we had to live out there for a few months. And this would have been probably October of 89. And the first thing we did, I, I want to say it was like, The next day, like we got there, we got settled in our rooms and stuff. And like the next day we went to SBK. They had an office down on Sunset. And we went to their offices and they had a studio in the first floor. I remember it well because it was pretty much right across the street from the old Tower Records on Sunset. And uh, you could look out the window of the studio and see Tower Records which I thought was pretty cool. But that's the first day we met Max and, you know, got a feel for him. And it was real quick. Hey, Max, nice to meet you. That was it. Hey, where's some coffee? And, stuff? you know, we weren't hanging out immediately. It was just like, let's get to work. Right. They mic'd us up. We recorded. He goes, he gets on the talk back, record, play every song, you know, seriously, every, and we're like looking around every song we know. Yeah, even cover songs. Whatever you feel like you want to throw down on here, just do it. I'm going to hit record, and you're just going to fucking play all day. All right, so we did. We just started jamming. Pick a song, go. Pick a song, go. Pick a song, go. We might have recorded, I don't know, 14 songs. Ironically, we recorded uh, Love Hurts.
2: By Nazareth?
3: Yeah. Yeah um there were we probably recorded some extra songs that day uh during that initial recording but it was just a two-track not a multi-track it was live and i may have that may have that floating around but you'll never hear it
1: oh man yeah (laughs) you say that until somebody comes around and says we want to do a deluxe edition of that first dangerous toys album then we'll see what you pull out of the vault but man
3: this has been awesome when you hear it you'll go yeah this stinks (laughs) yeah thanks for having me man i appreciate you guys very much more than you than you actually know uh it was fun to do this yeah,
1: yeah i feel like i've learned a lot about an album i already loved
2: yeah same here that's beautiful and so you said there is stuff that's been recorded for possible new material
3: yeah it's not mixed and you know it's not ready yet and there's other new songs that are written that just haven't been recorded yet you know there's no budget there's no timeline there's no deadline there's no so you know
1: so but someday we're going to get another dangerous maybe
3: maybe i can say this don't hold your breath some of us are just into the process and want to get it some of us are you know gung-ho all the time oh that's slowing down i'm going to go somewhere else and use my time elsewhere
1: Oh, well then let me put it like this. No May. bitterness. There's
3: no bitterness. It's just some people are go, go, go. And other people are like, Hmm, let me think about this for about seven years. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well,
1: let me put it like this. May we have another please? You someday. don't hold
3: your breath. It's po- It's possible. My parts are done. Yeah. My- mic drop. Yeah. My parts are done, bro.
1: Hey. Everybody else, let's get it together. I can't, I can't
3: just release the vocal track. <laughs> <laughs> sure you can.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Where's Max Norman when you need him to crack that whip?
2: Well, he costs money.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah,
2: he costs a lot of money, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Well, Jason, thanks again for doing this. Yeah, and my uh, pleasure. People can find you on Facebook, all the social media, all that good stuff. Yep.
1: Talk Louder Podcast. Talk Louder Podcast. Great show. Thank you.
2: I appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.